Um, <clears throat> this is a talk I gave last night, so if you were here, uh, just bear with it. Uh, so, um, some of my favorite fables in early Buddhism uh, have to do with dealing with demons. The most familiar uh, is um, the famous Saka's anger-eating demon. Saka was um, a very powerful figure away on, on, I don't know, he was on a vacation. What didn't really specify in the text, but so he was off in Bermuda, sunning, and uh, while he was away, a demon comes into his castle and uh, sits on his throne, and all the guards that are there <coughs> um, freak out and start to insult and attack and poke at Saka, uh, so- the demon. Sorry, Saka's away, the demon, and they insult it, and with every insult and with every poke and every gesture of um, of uh, unwelcome, the demon gets bigger and bigger and bigger until it becomes terrifying and fire-breathing. And so when Saka returns, he finds that um, uh, his, the guards of his uh, castle are cowering outside. And so uh, to their disbelief, he goes in and rather than confronting the demon, he goes up to the fire-breathing monster and starts being very courteous and offering uh, pleasantries, welcome, I hope you're comfortable, uh, relax, feel, I hope my throne uh, feels uh, comfortable to you, can I get you anything to make you, you know, could... Uh, uh, what would you like to, to have to drink or eat? And so with every pleasantry, the demon gets smaller and smaller and smaller until it becomes a very small size and Saka can lift it off the throne. And then, uh, depending upon the version and who's telling it, um, the demon either runs off or disappears. But um, <coughs> that's that fable. And then the other one I really particularly enjoy is the Milarepa. Uh, Milarepa was an early Buddhist figure and the story goes that Milarepa was um, out fetching firewood and uh, while he was away um, his cave became uh, taken over by a swarm of demons. And so Milarepa was uh, by far and away a much more uh, uh, advanced spiritual practitioner. So unlike uh, the guards in Saka's palace, Milarepa attempted to reason with the demons and tried to teach it the Dharma, you know, give it a lesson in impermanence and uh, the values of compassion. And it turns out that the demons were really quite uh, impervious to reason and logic. And so he became frustrated, and he started getting angry and started insulting them, and they started laughing, as demons will. Um, completely, again, uh, were not to be pushed off or brushed aside by frustration, anger, or by reason. So finally, uh, Milarepa said... Um, um, 
decided that there was nothing that he could um, do to get rid of them, so he just announced, well, I guess you're going to be here, I'm going to be here, so we'll just have to share this cave with... Um, uh, we'll have to share it, and you're welcome, and feel free to use it, and uh, just know that you're allowed. And with these, this gesture, all but one of the demons disappeared. The last one that was so huge and so terrifying uh, that remained, that all you could really make out was these just ferocious teeth. And uh, he was terrified by reflecting on uh, how the other demons disappeared um, and so they were not real. The figure Milarepa got up his courage and walked over uh, slowly and put his head into the jaw of this demon and said, in, in essence, bite me. <laughs> uh, bite my head off. And so at that moment, the demon disappears. So obviously, these are metaphors for Buddhist approaches to working with fear, working with difficult emotional states. The castle uh, in Saka's story is metaphoric for the human mind, especially the throne is uh, awareness. Saka represents someone's spiritual practice, going off, wandering off, losing attention to what's happening in the present moment. Uh, the demon is an emotion an emotional state that's really uncomfortable, anger, fear, sadness, loneliness, let's call it fear, uh, that arises into awareness. And generally the way then we deal with uncomfortable emotions is we try to get rid of them. We get angry, frustrated, we try to resist. And so the more resistance we bring to uncomfortable emotions, the more uh, powerful they often become, uh, especially fear. Uh, some emotions we can simply resist and get rid of. Very often, fear in any substantial state will not go away simply despite our disapproval. So, uh, and as we'll see, Saka's approach to instead of resisting or, or denigrating or abusing um, anger and fear, he basically... Uh, came to it and brought an energy of welcoming. How can I make you feel comfortable? Which, in essence, um, is the agenda of Vipassana or insight, which is to mindfully uh, open to everything that arises rather than resisting our emotional experience. As human beings, what we all need is, the, is permission to have emotions. And when we're young, unfortunately, not all of the emotions that we have are permitted by our caretakers and the people around us, our schools. We're told often that it's okay to be uh, upbeat and positive and, and enthusiastic and happy, but when we are sad or uh, angry, frustrated, motivated, lonely, bored, whatever, we're told that's not okay. And so we can experience when we experience these perfectly natural human emotions, we fall into the trap of trying to get rid of them. 
rather than just to become comfortable and permit every emotional state to arise and pass. Now with uh, Milarepa, the metaphor is of um, uh, sometimes there's something even more terrifying than fear that requires a different kind of action. So I'm going to talk about right now the three levels of fear that we experience in life um, and how Milarepa's story or the, the fable helps us relate to our own uh, fears, terrors, etc. In life we have one level of fear which I would call just concerns and worries. If you have to have a medical procedure that you haven't had before, um, if a plumber comes to your house and announces that the pipes are all wrong and you have to have something done, um, uh, these are worries and concerns, but with a little bit of research and taking an action, we can uh, generally relieve worries and concerns. We don't become bothered by them. So if, for instance, we have to, if we have, to have a, a, a medical procedure, we might look it up, talk to somebody else who's had that procedure, get information from the doctor, and um, very often the fear, the concern, the worry will be alleviated because uh, it's not of such a pressing level of fear that it's resistant to reason. So... Um, all the time, we have worries and concerns. Bills arrive, uh, challenges, uh, setbacks, little frustrations in life. And all the time, we're dealing with these little discomforts, these little worries. And um, we get very used to the idea that everything in our life uh, should be amenable and alleviated and assuaged by just reasoning and talking to it that the left hemisphere with its, its concepts should always win over the right hemisphere, for those of you who are neuroscience geeks like myself. So, um, of course, that's not the case. There are the second level fears, which I will uh, call um, uh, phobias, anxieties, fear associations, basically where we associate uh, some sensation or some circumstance with danger. And very often these associations are, uh, invariably, they're made earlier in life. And we can remember often when they were made, but it creates a sense that doing something is putting us in danger. So, for instance, if you have a fear of um, speaking in front of people, it might be at one point in your life you were asked to speak in front of people and it didn't go so well, so from that point on uh, uh, we associate talking in public with vulnerability. Or it could be we come from a family where whenever we spoke up and tried to get attention to ourselves, people didn't reward us from it, for it. So somewhere we've associated speaking out loud with danger. And this can happen... People have all sorts of phobias and anxieties. We can have social anxieties where we feel the need to perform in front of other people that if we don't act in the right way, we'll be rejected. We can have um, phobias based on uh, situations, test-taking, 
being alone, agoraphobia, being out in, in spaces. In each of these cases, we're aware of what we're frightened of. We know uh, if uh, we get panic attacks on a subway or in an enclosed space, we know exactly what the trigger is. The enclosed space, the subway, the judgment of people being on an airplane. So we almost invariably have a sense of what's creating or what the trigger is. Um, nevertheless, phobias, anxieties, these fear associations generally are not amenable to reason or logic. You can try to tell somebody who's frightened of being on a plane or is hyperventilating in a stalled elevator. You can say, hey, what's the big problem there, buddy? There's nothing going on. You're going to be okay. You're going to be fine. And that will not help one bit. Because um, it's, it's just not uh, the... Once you've made a fear association, uh, it's really stamped into regions of the brain that are not linguistic, not amenable to language or reason. It becomes literally uh, part of the amygdala, uh, which associates uh, that trigger with vulnerability. And the amygdala does not understand language. So, for instance, if we're in a uh, really embarrassing social situation and it happens, uh, it happens uh, in a certain group of people, the next time you see that group of people or you see somebody from that scenario, we will get nervous, even though they had nothing to do with the embarrassment. Um, uh, so very often really faux pas or things that have been personally catastrophic or anything that we associate with violence or danger uh, will be ingrained in the mind and will create a fear and no matter how much we try to reason with this fear this anxiety, this phobia it will stay ingrained and so what happens is we act like Sokka's guards we become frustrated and we start insulting ourselves, and we start turning it into a story of there's something wrong with me. I'm the person who doesn't do well in tests. I'm the person who, ha who uh, puts off doing things to the last moment. I'm the person who uh, is uncomfortable in large groups. I'm the this, I'm the that. We turn it into an identity story, and then we really get stuck with these fears. So the Buddhist approach to alleviating anxieties and phobias is to not try to reason with it, but to first greet and allow and give permission. So in essence, we're providing for ourselves very often the one thing that nobody else does in the world. When we feel fear or uh, unease or terror or discomfort, most of the time people try to reason with us, but they don't say it's okay. You know, it's allowed. You can be frightened. You can be uh, insecure. In our culture, when somebody is, feel, has a body image and they don't like the way they look, we try to tell them immediately, oh, but you look beautiful. You're so, you're so beautiful. 
Put up a selfie on Facebook. People will love you. And that alleviates nothing. What we really need to hear is, yes, I know how it feels to feel uncomfortable, uh, to feel uh, disappointed. I know how it feels to feel unenthusiastic. I know what that emotion feels like. That's what we need as human beings to be uh, deactivated. And so uh, just the act of when fear of anything arises. It can be just low self-esteem stories arising in the mind. Oh, you suck. You're a failure. You're not doing anything. What's the matter with you? Oh, hi, you again. Welcome. Here's, you know. And then, though, what we do is a little bit different than um, we're normally used to. We then go to the body and we find what's beneath, what's going on in the body and the breath beneath, what's the somatic, kinesthetic experience beneath the fear. What happens when I become frightened of going to the doctor or the dentist or traveling or, or, or when I, I'm putting off having a, a meeting that feels scary or when I'm, uh, you know, what is beneath that fear? So, um, one of my favorite analogies for this is uh, The Wizard of Oz, which um, I hope you've all seen at one point in your life. Um, one of the uh, final the scenes is that Oz is presented as this big, terrifying, fire, you know, smoke-breathing, monstrous, big head in this weird castle and um, the very tiresome characters of Dorothy and the dog and the, <laughs> the Tin Man and the Scarecrow and the, the Lion are all there. And they're all terrified, but at one point Toto the dog, which is otherwise of no redeeming qualities whatsoever, but he does um, <laughs> pull the, uh, uh, the, uh, the curtain aside, revealing Oz manipulating the machines and uh, the, the character is actually a little man you know, working mechanism says, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, I am Oz and so this is generally how fear works, when we look beneath this big fire breathing monstrous frightening thing uh, what we find beneath it is just a lot of discomforts in the body, we find like the breath is breathing very quickly, the muscles are tense, the stomach's tight, and that's really the character that gives fear its, its power. It's not all these stories which are not real. The real quality that's really present is simply some muscles getting tight in the body. And if we simply turn and address the body and relax it, then suddenly the big Oz disappears. Because the big character Oz is completely dependent upon that little guy moving the machines, which is actually the breath in the body. All right, it's a tired analogy, but, but work with it. Um, so, um, the thing about... Um, also, working with these kinds of anxieties and fears, is they, they really benefit from having a uh, support group, being part of a community 
just being able to share about the um, out loud about I'm having to travel home during Thanksgiving. I'm nervous about being uh, at a large dinner. I'm worried about how I'm going to be perceived. I'm worried about traveling. I don't particularly want to go to this place. Whatever it is, you know, during these times of year, we're all supposed to be feeling excited, supposed to be feeling enthusiastic. And it creates these completely legislated emotions. And what we really need is the permission to say exactly how we feel about each event. So um, really, when we're working with anxiety, uh, phobias, any kind of difficult, you know, these kind of emotions, it's really worthwhile to have a place where we can go and just share and acknowledge uh, the emotions. Now, the third and final kind of uh, fear is what I call actually terror, and um, terror of the unknown. And that's the, that's the big final demon that remains in Milarepa's cave, that he can only see basically the teeth and m nothing else. It's just so huge. And um, these terrors, unlike fears and phobias, these are often stemming from events in really early childhood before narrative memories were formed. So there's nothing to actually recall. You can't, we can't even recall where the, uh, the terror stems from. Uh, actually, the right hemisphere of the brain, which records emotion, emotional relationships and vulnerability, uh, is working from the moment we're born. But children only really develop narrative memory uh, that's around age three. So we've got a number of years where we are forming uh, memories while we're not forming any narrative memories. We're just putting in these felt. And the emotional memories are felt. They're not visual. They're not auditory. They're not in a, in a chronology. They're physical, physical memories, kinesthetic memories. The feelings of vulnerability when we're first left alone in a dark room as an infant. The feeling of vulnerability that we don't feel secure with a caretaker or, or anything like that. So terror is, because it's felt in representation in the world, it has no face. You never see it. You never see... Um, the most terrifying things in life. For example, uh, as I was using last night, in Alien, the movie Alien, the movie is at its most terrifying before you actually see the unpleasant looking uh, kind of an insect, big insect, I don't know, what is it, alien. But uh, you, when you don't see it, when it's just the, all you see is characters going off on their own in this big dark spaceship, and really what this represents is the fear of separation, abandonment, mm -hmm. and the terror that it brings. So terror is almost invar in, uh, invariably, it's relational. It's not about 
things creating vulnerability. It's not about specific sensations that you can see and describe creating fear. What it is about is a lack of relationship or moving into a relationship. It's about moving away from people into one's own or moving towards people. So it, it has to do with um, dynamics, less than specific notable sensations, and that probably this is all like, you know, whatever, but work with me anyway. Um, so, very often, whereas, you know, phobias and anxieties are of specific things, it's much more difficult to talk about terror, A, number one, because terror from early infancy creates a feeling of annihilation if we do something that, uh, that other people can easily do. Other people, for instance, can easily quit a job that they don't like, but somebody who has experienced great vulnerability in early childhood will find it impossible to leave the, a job, even though the job is miserable for them. They'll feel this sense of, like, just terror. Just even writing a, a resume or doing, taking any step away creates this feeling of just complete vulnerability and annihilation. It's very difficult to work with these kinds of terrors because, one, uh, we don't know exactly what it is. It's very difficult to verbalize to other people. When we're talking about phobias, we can say, oh, yeah, I'm frightened of flying. Oh, yeah, I, I know somebody who's frightened of flying. Yeah, all, all you got to do is take a clonopin, you'll be fine. <laughs> you know, that's, that's what... Uh, that's the normal you know, way of talking about phobias. We know what we're talking about, but when it, talks, when it comes to terror, the terror of leaving a relationship uh, that's been abusive, but still the idea of moving off to one's own creates terror. Or maybe the terror of going into a relationship where we feel trapped, overwhelmed, like we'll disappear in a relationship. That these these uh, terrors that stem from infancy can almost be impossible to verbalize because we can't even really say what is creating the terror. It takes a lot of uh, familiarity with attachment and, and early psychology and developmental psychology to know that it's based on relationships. So it can be very frustrating to verbalize to other people. We need people who are extremely tolerant of just the emotions being expressed without us being able to express why we're feeling this emotion. All we know is, I'm feeling overwhelmed, you know, and somebody could say, well, why don't you, you know, uh, uh, leave this situation, leave this terrible band that you're in, leave this, you know, uh, this horrible job, why don't you, but it just brings up this overwhelming fear. So the key of working with um, uh, terror is first getting the experience of working with the lesser anxieties and phobias, the work of greeting, of expressing to groups the emotional states, of, of being familiar with the body. If you notice in those stories... Um, Milarepa first releases all the lesser demons from the cave before he addresses the big, frightening one that's so big it's just teeth. Um, so that's um, important. 
we need to develop the momentum of, of uh, associating risk and taking uh, actions with reward. And, and it takes a lot of momentum to get us to the place where we'll be willing to take tentative steps. It also, again, as I said, it requires finding people who are very tolerant. Very often when it comes to work with being stuck, we need to find somebody who really is accustomed to working with uh, people one-on-one. -on -one. It doesn't have to be a therapist, a Buddhist uh, teacher, a psychiatrist. It could just be somebody who's really will be there and can tolerate any emotion without demanding explanations or reason. Um, the, another thing about uh, terror is that terror will grab onto any, re, any twisted logic to stay motionless and not do anything. Um, when we meet somebody who's in terror of taking an action, they'll say, I can't leave this abusive relationship or this abusive job because I'll never find another job ever. I'll never find another relationship ever. That's it. I'll be alone for the rest of my life. And you're like, you're 28. <laughs> it's a bit of a stretch to say that. But terror does not respond. It's formed by early infancy. It doesn't, that, that language makes no sense to it. So simply we need to be with someone who can um, uh, tolerate and hear the fear and, and just encourage us to express it. The more we express and try to verbalize the, uh, um, what, what's keeping us inactive, eventually we begin to hear ourselves the lack of, of logic and we begin to realize that there's something um, very fishy about all the rules and stories we've put together to keep ourselves stuck. Terror, by the way, is always about um, lack of movement. It's Whereas phobia and uh, anxiety, we meet with resistance or we run away. When we're in terror, we, we go into what's known as freeze states. We literally don't move. We literally can't act. So um, eventually, the more we give permission to people to just talk about the emotions, to express the static frustration of being unable to move, we can begin to turn this invisible demon, we can begin to give it qualities. We can begin to figure out, okay, there's this feeling present in the body that if we move away from some relationship that we'll, we'll die. And then we begin to be able to hold it. And we begin to be able to uh, create a vessel, a safe vessel for it. Um, And if there's uh, enough time to... Uh... Eventually, it's worth noting that um, in the movie Aliens, eventually the, the alien does take shape. 
And I personally think, by the way, this has nothing to do with the talk, but hey, I'm stalling until I figure out a way to end tonight's talk. Uh, but I think that Aliens is all about the fear of pregnancy. Because <laughs> <laughs> Ripley's the last one, and the, the thing comes out of the ballet, and it's all about a woman being alone without, you know, uh, it's this creating this, this, this fear state. Um, I think, though, that the, the metaphor is important, though, because the more we uh, work uh, with terror, the more we begin to see that um, what it really needs is permission to be talked about, permission to um, be turned into feelings in the body that can be, can be held rather than run from. We begin to feel that we can move into that, that discomfort and eventually what we can do is finally what um, Milarepa does when he puts his head into the jaw of the demon, which is once we have enough support in our life, we can begin to do very incremental exposure to that which we are terrified of. We can literally show ourselves that we can walk away from a relationship, take tentative steps away towards liberation, or we can move into a relationship when we're terrified of it. We can take steps, very incremental steps, to, to walk away from a situation which is abusive. And that is, in essence, putting our head into the, um, the jaw, the, t the teeth of the demon. Because when we do that, we find that we don't, in fact, die. We don't get our heads be bitten off by the demon. We continue to live. But we won't be able to do that with any pressure, any agendas, any people shouting or getting frustrated with us. We won't be able to do it by shaming ourselves. The only way we can get to that point of slowly walking across the cave and putting our head into the demon's mouth is by literally having a lot of key support where people allow us to begin to get a feeling of the qualities of that which is creating terror for us. It's a very slow, long process, but it's a very worthwhile one. So I hope there was something of interest tonight in, in the talk. I uh, thank you for listening.